And today we're on number three of the seven. Last week, or the last two weeks, we've looked at these two. The first week was, and these are in chronological order, so these are the order in which Jesus said them. They're recorded in different Gospels, different ways. There's no one Gospel that records all of them. Luke's Gospel records the first two sayings of Christ from the cross. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And then last week to the thief, one of the thieves, today you will be with me in paradise. So today's saying, the third saying from the cross, is in John's Gospel. So turning your Bibles to John chapter 19. If you're using a pew Bible, you'll find that on page 905. 905. The third saying from the cross is this. Woman, behold your son. And then in the next breath, to the disciple whom he loved, which is understood to be John, the apostle, he says to John, behold your mother. It's interesting, just off the, from the beginning, that all three of these sayings from the cross are spoken on behalf of others, which is an amazing and astounding thought if you pause to think about it. Because most of us, I know I'm this way, and most of you to one degree or another are probably not that different from me, that when my problems are multiplied, I'm not thinking about other people's problems. Or I'm not thinking about what can I do for other people in this moment. Jesus is literally being crucified on a cross. And in these moments, he says, Father, let it go. They don't know what they're doing. He says to the thief, today you'll be with me in paradise. And he says to his mother, behold your son, and to John, behold your mother. The fact that he's thinking on any level about other people and ways that he can, even as Messiah on a cross, be on some, in some fashion ministering to them or speaking truth in, truths into their lives is an amazing thought. It's an amazing thought. If I'm sick, I don't want to hear about your sick. You should feel out, you should know how I'm sick because I've got problems. And then you've got your problems. And Jesus is reaching out on the cross in these moments. That's phenomenal. Two other sayings are recorded in John, not four, five, and six. The next two sayings are five and six. So next week uh, for saying number four will be either in Matthew's gospel or Mark's gospel. They record the same one. But later in John's gospel, he will say, I thirst, and he will say, it is finished. Well, probably, I probably will put those two together since I've got six weeks to do seven sayings. I've got to combine something somewhere, and those are probably the two I will combine. I told you last week when we were in Luke's gospel, we've been in there the last two weeks, we kind of took a rabbit trail and talked a little bit how each gospel is unique, but we looked at how Luke's gospel gives us stories and insight that the other Gospels don't, just like each Gospel does. Each Gospel emphasizes certain things that the other Gospels don't emphasize. So since we're turning to John's Gospel, and we'll be there uh, for two other sayings later on, I think it's good to do just a little bit of background uh, work on John's Gospel. To start with, it's the last Gospel written. John, so far as we understand or, or would believe, he's familiar with what has already been written. He knows what Matthew wrote. He knows what Mark wrote uh, through his close association with the Apostle Peter. He knows what Luke wrote. Uh, John is the last gospel. 
John knows what has been written. It's, it's not only the last gospel of the four, it's, it's potentially very late in the first century, although there's good reason to believe it's last only by a couple years, but it may be last by a couple decades. That's somewhat uncertain. But John knows what has been written, and so John, I think, wants to draw attention to things or explain things that the other gospels people may be unclear on, or it may be that he's responding to some of the heresy that he sees as potentially creeping into the church. And so he wants to highlight things, draw attention to things that the other gospels haven't at least not to the degree that John wants to. So what does John highlight? Number one on the list is is the deity of Jesus. And it doesn't mean that you can't find the deity of Jesus in the other Gospels. You can. But in John's Gospel, it takes a whole new level. He steps it up a notch. He, He highlights the deity of Christ, of Jesus, more than the other Gospels do. And so out of that, he's emphasizing spiritual relationships rather than human ties. Uh... Think as early as uh, his discussion with Nicodemus. You know, you must be born again. You must be born from above. You must be born of the Spirit of God. What matters is not whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, slave or free, male or female. That's, that's not what is important so far as your relationship in the kingdom of God and the Lord's Messiah. So he's emphasizing these spiritual relationships, which only happen by the deity of Christ. These relationships are because he is God. He's fully man, but John wants to emphasize he's also fully God. John's gospel starts off very early with a a similar narrative to all four gospels. John the Baptist is one of the first people you meet. In all gospels, John the Baptist is practically the first main character you meet. I guess in Luke's gospel, you do have Mary and, and uh, Elizabeth and Zechariah, uh, John the Baptist's parents. But jo- John the Baptist pops up early. John's gospel treats him very differently than the other gospels. I don't, if you've ever read this and, and paid attention, it won't be a surprise to you. In John's gospel, there's no uh, call to repentance. There's no repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It doesn't mean that John doesn't believe that message was preached, but that's not what John highlights. He's not preaching this a message of repentance, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John doesn't even record Jesus' baptism. He alludes to it. And because of the other Gospels, the way that John says things, you know he's talking about the baptism. But so far as the baptism itself goes, not recorded in John's Gospel. So... He brings up John the baptizer. What does he want to emphasize in that episode? And the answer is he's emphasizing who Jesus is in this moment. Who is this one being baptized? Or that he's introducing to his readers. John chapter 1, you don't have to turn there. I'm going to show it to you on the screen. But this is John's rendering of bringing up John the Baptist. It goes like this. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said... Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him. But for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. 
I myself did not know him. But he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Emphasizing the deity of Christ, you have, uh, he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He ranks before me because he was before me. This is he. Who is he? He's the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Who is he? This is the Son of God. This is God on earth dwelling among his people. That's what John emphasizes. Here's something else John emphasizes that the other Gospels don't. The seven I am statements in John's Gospel. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the gate. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And I am the true vine. All emphasizing the deity of Christ. Who is he? This is who he is. All in John's gospel. But for our purposes, we're in John chapter 19. So let me read through this text and we'll break it down. John chapter 19, it reads like this in the English Standard Version. So he, speaking of Pilate in verse 16, delivered him, speaking of Jesus, over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts. One part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother... And the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own home. So a couple observations before we get to the initial saying. We start off the crucifixion scene. Jesus went out bearing his own cross. I just want to clear up what I think are probably popular conceptions in culture and historical art. Uh, when Jesus carried his own cross, it was almost certainly just the cross beam, which would have been very heavy under normal circumstances, even seemingly more heavy given the circumstances that Christ is faced with being scourged and beaten and, and all of that that went before. But the fact that he would, like in a lot of pictures and things like that, where he's carrying the entire cross, both the vertical and the horizontal, highly unlikely... Uh, 
you know, we've got a good number of acres out here, and once in a while, a storm blows down a big limb, and, and I will try to haul that limb over to the burn pile, and I can tell you, wood gets heavy pretty quick. Uh, and if Jesus is only carrying the horizontal beam, that would be plenty heavy, because it's got to be heavy enough where they're, they use it to pound nails into to hang a man on. It's not just a cheap piece of cheap plywood. The second misconception is that sometimes in many paintings it's portrayed that Jesus is very high up on a cross. That is also quite unlikely. Most crucifixions took place. They were probably, he could be as tall as this, but maybe 18 at the most, from historically what I'm reading, at the most three foot, which would be quite high actually. But it's, he's elevated, but it's not like he's so elevated uh, like in some of the paintings you've seen maybe from the Middle Ages. So those, those two misconceptions. Then we have, they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. That idea between them is what I want to focus on next. Uh, the old King James says, in the midst, in the midst. Both are accurate. It's right in the middle. It's in the center. Things that happen in the middle are kind of uh, the focal point. It's what's most important if you're in the middle if it's a good thing, you want to be in the middle of a good thing. Uh, if it's a bad thing, you want to stay out of the middle. Uh, but it's very interesting how that word is used in the Gospels or in the Bible, in the New Testament, particularly in relationship to Jesus. Things that Jesus did in the middle, where he was the center, right in the midst. Do you know the first time Jesus was right in the middle of things? First time. He was 12 years old. He'd gone to Passover with his parents. And his parents, the, the caravan to go back home to Nazareth had left. And it's a lot of friends. It's a lot of family. Safer to travel together. Uh, his parents assumed Jesus, the 12-year-old boy, was with them. But he wasn't. And so they had to spend a day, maybe at least a day, going back to Jerusalem. Maybe two. They began looking for him. And then you have this in Luke 2. After three days, they found Jesus in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. He's right, in, he's right in the center, right in the middle of things at age 12. It's the exact same word that's used, uh, translated between in Luke's gospel or in the midst. It's always the same word that I'm showing you here. But at 12 years old, he's right in the middle. Jesus is teaching his disciples. He's training them, preparing them for ministry, particularly after he's gone. And Jesus tells his disciples this. For who is the greater? One who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am in the midst of you as the one who serves. I'm right in the middle. I'm serving all of you. And he's setting an example for his disciples to follow in ministry, in leadership, among God's people. I'm in the midst of you. In the resurrection, after the resurrection, three times it says Jesus came and stood in the midst of them. And it's also interesting on all three occasions Jesus says, peace be with you. But he's right in the middle. He's not off. Did you see that off to the side? It's not like a shooting star. I think I saw him. Like, because if you, if you try to look directly at a shooting star, you can't because of the way you have, your eyes have cones and something else. And you see shooting stars more often. Your night vision is better off to the side. So it's like, I think I saw a shooting star. 
But Jesus, when he appears after the resurrection, he's right in their midst. There's no mistaking what just happened, who this is, and what he's communicating to his people. And then finally, in Revelation, the heavenly scene, John John the Apostle says, And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne, in the midst of the four living creatures, in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb as though it had been slain. Right in the midst. Now I used a New King James Version there because I wanted to use the word midst. Right in the midst of all the celebration of heaven, right in the midst of the worship of God, is a lamb looking as though it had been slain. And you know what? That lamb was slain between a midst, in the midst of a criminal on either side. So what John saw was exactly right. He was slain. And all of heaven is worshiping him as redeemer. Right in the midst. Let's talk about the soldiers for a moment. It's interesting. All four gospels record the soldiers like they're a really important part of the story. None of the gospels... There's no, there's no one instance where all four Gospels record the same saying of Christ from the cross. But all four Gospels record the soldiers and what they're doing, what's transpiring with them. I find that fascinating because it seems like kind of a minor point to me. It seems like there were, uh, if I were to record details, if I were taking notes, I'm, I might in passing mention the soldiers, but it wouldn't be a big part of my story but it's a big part of all the Gospels writer's story. But John's Gospel, it, it tells us basically why. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, they divided my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. John wants us to know, like all the Gospel writers want us to know, that what is happening now is not an accident. It's not a good plan gone bad. It's God's plan being fulfilled. It's all being accomplished exactly as the prophets said it would be accomplished. Do the soldiers know that? No, they don't. Do the chief priests know that? No, they don't. Do Jesus' disciples know that? No, they don't. Should they know that? Yes, they should. I mean, Jesus spoke very specifically to his disciples. Here's exactly what's going to happen. Here's what's on the agenda when I go to Jerusalem. And they haven't a clue what he's talking about. They understand after the fact but not ahead of time. But the gospel writers want us to know this is all proceeding according to the redemptive purposes of God set in place before the foundation of the world. It's God's plan. Corrie ten Boom refers to this incident in her book, The Hiding Place, which is such a terrific book. The audio book is also very good. And I'm, I'm a little hesitant to play what is probably... I don't know how long it is. I forgot to check. It's probably three or four minute long clip from the book. But it is so good and it fits so well with what Hannah has already talked about. Where what shall separate me from the love of Christ? To give you a very brief background on Corrie ten Boom. She was taken by the Germans uh, during World War II. She was in Holland. She and her family hid Jews in this hiding place. Uh, The Germans eventually knew she was hiding people. Knew the family was. Uh, So the family was taken uh, prisoner. Uh, She and her sister Betsy wound up in Ravensbrook, at least for a time. I don't know that that's the last prison camp they wound up at. But this is her story about being, this is a part of her story about being in Ravensbrook with her sister Betsy as prisoners of war. 
And there's so much of what she says that is so good that fits not only this story, but just really uh, what does it mean to have a relationship with God through Christ. Her insights are terrific. It goes like this. It grew harder and harder. Even within these four walls, there was too much misery, too much seemingly pointless suffering. Every day, something else failed to make sense. Something else grew too heavy. Will you carry this too, Lord Jesus? But as the rest of the world grew stranger, one thing became increasingly clear, and that was the reason the two of us were here. Why others should suffer we were not shown. As for us, from morning until lights out, whenever we were not in ranks for roll call, our Bible was the center of an ever-widening circle of help and hope. Like waifs clustered around a blazing fire, we gathered about it, holding out our hearts to its warmth and light. The blacker the night around us grew, the brighter and truer and more beautiful burned the word of God. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. I would look about as Betsy read watching the light leap from face to face. More than conquerors. It was not a wish. It was a fact. We knew it. We experienced it minute by minute. Poor, hated, hungry. We are more than conquerors. Not we shall be. We are. Life in Ravensbrook took place on two separate levels. Mutually impossible. One, the observable external life grew every day more horrible. The other, the life we lived with God, grew daily better. Truth upon truth, glory upon glory. Sometimes I would slip the Bible from its little sack with hands that shook, so mysterious had it become to me. It was new. It had just been written. I marveled sometimes that the ink was dry. I had believed the Bible always, but reading it now had nothing to do with belief. It was simply a description of the way things were, of hell and heaven, of how men act and how God acts. I had read a thousand times the story of Jesus' arrest, how soldiers had slapped him, laughed at him, flogged him. Now such happenings had faces and voices. Fridays, the recurrent humiliation of medical inspection. The hospital corridor in which we waited was unheeded, and a fall chill had settled into the walls. Still, we were forbidden even to wrap ourselves in our own arms, but had to maintain our erect hands-at-sides position as we filed slowly past a phalanx of grinning guards. How there could have been any pleasure in the sight of these stick-thin legs and hunger-bloated stomachs I could not imagine. Surely there is no more wretched sight than the human body unloved and uncared for. Nor could I see the necessity for the complete undressing. 
When we finally reached the examining room, a doctor looked down each throat, another, a dentist presumably, at our teeth, a third in between each finger. And that was all. We trooped again down the long, cold corridor and picked up our X-marked dresses at the door. But it was one of these mornings, while we were waiting, shivering in the corridor, that yet another page in the Bible leapt into life for me. He hung naked on the cross. I had not known. I had not thought. The paintings, the carved crucifixes, showed at the least a scrap of cloth. But this, I suddenly knew, was the respect and reverence of the artist. But, oh, at the time itself, on that other Friday morning, there had been no reverence, no more than I saw in the faces around us now. I leaned toward Betsy, ahead of me in line. Her shoulder blades stood out sharp and thin beneath her blue-mottled skin. Betsy, they took his clothes, too. Ahead of me, I heard a little gasp. Oh, Corey, and I never thanked him. I don't know if you've ever thought the thought that when Christ hung on the cross, likely the way he was crucified would have been like how the Romans crucified anybody. They had no clothes. That was part of the humiliation. And that's what the soldiers are dividing up at the foot of the cross. Now, there are some, it may be because of their own, uh, it's hard to get your mind around that, uh, partly because of the way he's always portrayed in everything we've ever seen, that uh, some say because of Jewish sensibilities, maybe the Romans made an accommodation for Jewish crucifixions where they di were given a scrap of cloth. But I can assure you that was not normal procedure for a Roman crucifixion. And uh, I think it's telling how when you live through that story, uh, something as seemingly as insignificant as that may become very packed with meaning. And he hung naked too as she goes through her experience in World War II. So the soldiers did these things, and then you have this contrasting word, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. Believe it or not, there's quite a bit of discussion how many women are there. I'm going to go with the majority opinion that there's four women. Uh, I don't think his mother's sister is Mary the wife of Clopas. I think that would be at least highly unusual to have two daughters both named Mary, some people try to defend that position, but uh, the majority position is there are four women at the cross. Verse 26, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby. So his attention is particularly drawn out of the four women to the one woman who is his mother. And it's unimaginable the grief that she would be experiencing and the sorrow in this moment. Uh, I've been here 27 and a half some years. So I've had a lot of time to teach a lot of Bible. Um, done most of the New Testament, not all of it. We've got a few books left. But I've taught a lot of the Bible. And before I came here, I was involved in ministry, I don't know, I mean, kind of starting to vocationally maybe five years before and maybe ten years total before that teaching the Bible. Back when I used to teach the Bible, especially when you're a guest speaker somewhere, like I would have been a guest speaker here at some point way back in the day, uh, there's was, there was a handful of messages, you're like, you know, that one usually goes pretty well. 
and so some of the messages I would repeat, people seem to respond well to it. I think it's communicating a good truth. But in, in the 27 years here, there's a message that I used to teach I've never taught here. And it's a message on suffering. And one of the reasons why I stopped teaching it is because I could never get through the message without crying, without breaking up. And it's a story, it's a story by Frank Boydston, who is a pastor, uh, I think a Reformed Baptist pastor somewhere. I met him down in St. Louis and talked to him about this story where he had a, he had a large family and one of his sons was killed in a hunting accident. You know, an in, inadvertent shot. See, now I shouldn't be telling the story now. <laughs> But uh, how, he, how he cradles his son as he's dying and how he reconciles that with the providence of God. Uh, it's a very powerful story, but back when I used to teach that story, my boys were young. And you can't tell a story like that without imagining what you're losing. So I stopped teaching that story for good reason, obviously. So his mother, I can't imagine... The grief and the sorrow in this moment. And then the disciple whom he loves standing nearby. The disciple is John. John never names himself. I can't prove it's John. We all get to heaven. We may find out it's not John, but I can tell you that 98% of anybody that ever writes on this, this is a way of John being unassuming, referring to himself without naming himself. So John and his mother. John is there. He's... He's believed to be not only the last gospel writer and not only writing the last book of the New Testament, Revelation, John was very young. He probably was the youngest of all Jesus' Jesus's disciples. He lived the longest. Uh, John, you know, Jesus entered public ministry at 30. John might have been, he's probably his first cousin. Uh, John might have been 20. He might have been 18. So I think the relationship between this disciple whom Jesus loved in Jesus, I think the relationship is, is the strong mentoring relationship of an older brother, of somebody that you look up to, somebody that has guided you, somebody that spends time, that has time for you. I think Jesus is that to John. I, I think it's safe to say, it's, it's easily safe to say, there are no two human people on earth that Jesus loves more than Mary, his mother, and John. Uh, there may be others that he loves equally to them, but nobody more. And it, it may be, a little more controversial maybe, but it may be that he does love these two more in an in a earthly sense, familial sense. He loves these two people, his mother and John, one of his disciples, his cousin. There's no two people on earth he loves and is known in the span of his life more than those two individuals. And he cares deeply for these two people as he's dying on a cross. John is able to be there. It would be uh, the Roman guards, many people surmise that if all Jesus' disciples, I think they were too timid and cowardly anyway, but if they had come as older men, they would have drawn the attention of the guards and it could have, the guards, it may have created a scene. But John is young, he's youthful, he's seemingly harmless, he doesn't seem to be a threat, he's able to be there. It says that uh, standing nearby, whom he loved standing nearby, I don't think that means he's standing nearby the cross. We already have established that. We know the women are near the cross. I think when it says in the text, whom he loved standing nearby, it means to say he's standing nearby Mary. He's already nearby Mary. So there's already that relationship 
that's close. Jesus recognizes it. And then you have these words. He said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. All the commentators say, Why does Jesus call his mother woman? It's not that Jesus doesn't know the word for mother because he uses it when he's talking to John. So there are any number of possibilities why he refers to his mother as woman, one of which is he doesn't want to identify her as mother because that would subject her to possible ridicule and mocking and and hurtful treatment by the Roman guards and the people around. If they understand that this is his mother and your son's being crucified, it may only increase her anguish, and he wants to spare her of that. Another possibility is that we can't imagine the grief she's going through, though it's a fulfillment of prophecy. She heard this when she took her son 33 years earlier to the temple uh, to dedicate him, and Simeon the prophet said, a sword will pierce your own soul too. I don't think she's ever forgotten that. I think she knows this is the moment. And I think it would only increase her grief if Jesus referred to her now as mother. (sighs) This is a rough series. If Jesus referred her to his mother because as a mother she can't do anything for her son. So by not naming her as mother, it becomes just a little less intimate, a little less close. I think the best reason why he doesn't refer to her as mother is because in John's gospel, as I told you at the outset, it mostly has to do with spiritual relationships, not physical And Mary needs to know that she needs a Savior too. And her relationship with Jesus on the cross is more defined by him being Redeemer than him being Son. I think those are all good reasons. These words, I think, are meant to be taken together. I think this may be mind-blowing for you because it was mind-blowing for me, though it doesn't make a huge difference. Richard Lenski advocates for this position. I think he's entirely right. Jesus doesn't say, he doesn't mean, woman, behold me, your son. Jesus is saying, woman, behold your son, to John standing next to her. And to John he says, behold your mother. The son is John. This is your son. This is who will, this is who, and he's entrusting one to the other which I think is the next point. He's entrusting Mary to John as the son. Jesus is the oldest boy in the family. Joseph, for all apparent reasons, has passed away. Uh, He might have been older when he married Mary to begin with. I don't know. But for whatever reason, he's gone. He's out of the picture. Jesus, as the oldest son, has the responsibility of caring for the mother. Jesus' brothers are unbelieving in the Gospels. At least later, Jesus' brother James becomes a believer after the resurrection. He actually becomes really the primary leader in the Jerusalem church. But prior to that, in John's gospel, they're unbelieving. And Jesus does not entrust his mother, who's experiencing the grief she is, to unbelieving siblings. He entrusts his mother to a believing disciple. And all this is in fulfillment of the fifth commandment. To honor your father and your mother. Which is interesting. There's a, a guy from, many of you probably have heard of him, Arthur Pink from, uh, I think he passed away in the 1950s, prolific writer, speaker. 
Arthur Pink talks quite a bit about this, and he talks about the importance of minding business at home. And he, he goes through a couple scenarios where people can get busy with all their other responsibilities professionally, uh, in whatever hobbies and circles they have, and leave untended business at home. And Jesus, who's dying on a cross, cares for his mother on the cross. Because if charity doesn't start at home, where does it start? So Jesus honors his mother in that moment. And I think I better quit. What are your comments and questions? Thoughts on... After this saying, there will be three hours of darkness. After the three hours of darkness, you have the last four sayings, which we'll pick up with next week. And the focus changes from Jesus ministering and caring for the people around him to more personal. Carrie? Oh. Oh. Um, I, I can't, I could make something up. I really, I mean, I can't tell you. It's a common place. I, I mean, the way the gospel writers record it, it's a, it's a well-known place. It's, a, it's part of the historical record. So back when it was first written, people would know, yeah, that's where people got crucified. So it's not, it's not telling a story for the sake of a story. It's not poetic truth. It's a real place. Uh, the most popular opinion is that this hillside, uh, if you looked at it right, it kind of took on, it kind of looked like a skull. Maybe, maybe not. The Bible doesn't clarify that. It may be called the place of the skull because there were a lot of dead bodies there and you could find skulls there. So uh, I think it's just giving historical credence to what's taking place. It's a real place. It's a real incident. Uh, and that's a, ver- you know, that's a verifiable fact in the first century. Yeah, we know the place. Somebody else? Rick? As he's being crucified. Like he kind of, like we think, I think, it's like there's sometimes I should get a free pass because life is difficult. Like I know I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have had that attitude. I shouldn't have been that sharp. But look, like this has been a really hard week or these are my circumstances, you know, and Jesus is on the cross and he's fulfilling the law. He's honoring his parents. I mean, those first three sayings are amazing. You've probably had the experience maybe where, you know, have you ever gone thinking you're going to visit somebody and, and you're going as an encouragement to them and they encourage you? That's an amazing... I remember one of the first times I ever really felt that feeling was before I was married, uh, when I dropped out of college, uh, and I was living in an apartment in Xenia, Ohio. I was on the third store of a third story of a, a big house kind of in downtown Xenia, as much as Xenia could have a downtown, as much as was left out of the tornado in 73. But uh, there was a big house. We were on the third story, not air-conditioned. It was, it was unbelievably hot up in the third story. There was no shower. We had a bathtub, uh, my roommate and I. It was, it was just horrible. We, we weren't there long, but I had to go somewhere. So it worked for a while. But at any rate, uh, living in the, in, I don't know if it was, the, I think it must have been the same house or maybe it was a neighbor. There was an old, I think it was a retired Methodist pastor. He was retired, an old guy. And he wasn't doing real well. And I thought, I thought, I'm going to encourage this guy. 
So I sat and talked with him, and I came away. I'm the one that was ministered to. I'm the one that was encouraged. I don't know that I was any benefit to him at all. He was in such a good place between his relationship with God through Christ. He was in such a good place. He didn't need my word of encouragement. I needed his. And sometimes that happens in life where I think I'm being sent on a mission to do something for somebody, and I find out, no, actually, I was going to receive. It's, a, it's an amazing thing. And so Jesus on the cross is still bestowing blessing and honor to the people he's speaking in relationship to as he's dying on a cross. So, lesson learned, if you want to, some of the lessons that commentators will bring out of this is, you know, we should never be so wrapped up in ourselves and our own problems that we think we are exempt from reaching out to the people around us. Jesus did from the cross. That's a pretty good example. Somebody else. Let's stand and be dismissed in prayer.